It's good to be with you again this evening. Tonight we are going to spend some time talking about doubt. Doubt is something, first of all, that each and every person deals with to varying degrees as we struggle through this life. In fact, it comes in all different forms, and it happens to folks of all different ages. We might be talking about children who are struggling, or I should say rather trying to find answers as to why it is that we do what we do. Why do we call ourselves Christians? Why don't we use instruments? Those kinds of questions. It could be someone who is struggling to reconcile the existence of God with an evil world, wrestling with the questions that plague us, the big questions of life. Maybe it's someone who's struggling over the tragic loss of a loved one. Maybe it's someone who's looking at life in general and all its chaos and wondering, is this really how it's supposed to be? To whatever degree, we all have doubts. We all have questions. And there are seasons in our life where we are struggling to reconcile what we know to be true with what we are not so sure about and try and figure out how it all, how it all works out. So the question tonight that I want us to think about is how do we deal with this? How do we handle it biblically? And how do we do so in a way that would please God? Let's start by defining the terms, first of all. I think that's important. How do you define the word doubt? Now, when I say doubt, I'm not necessarily talking about unbelief. And that's an important distinguishment to make, I think, because sometimes we may feel guilty. We may feel as if we are doing something wrong or sinning because we have a question or maybe a doubt about something that we're trying to reconcile in our minds. Now, it is possible that doubting can uh, be done in a way that is sinful, and we'll talk about that in just a little while. But having a question or doubting or trying to struggle or come to grips with some reality, that's not in and of itself wrong. It's not necessarily sinful. And so I would encourage us as we think about doubting to think about doubting really more in terms of questioning, in terms of seeking to find an understanding about something. One gentleman defined doubt in an apologetics book this way, as a lack of certainty concerning the teachings of Christianity or one's personal relationship to them. It's not a rejection. It's not an unbelief. It's simply, um, uh, it's simply a lack of certainty and a desire to have that certainty. I want to know. I want to understand. I'm struggling to uh, figure out uh, what all of this means. That's what we're talking about tonight when we talk about doubts. It's not unbelief and rejection, but it's simply a lack of understanding and a desire to come to that understanding. And this is a natural human occurrence. In fact, we see it several times in Scripture. Moses, Exodus chapter 3 and verse number 11. What was Moses, what was his initial reply to God when God told him about how he was going to go before Pharaoh and he was going to deliver the people out of Egypt? His reply in Exodus 3.11 was, Why, who am I? How can I do this? 
We have Gideon in the book of Judges chapter 6 and verse number 15. God told Gideon what his charge was going to be and how he was going to deliver the children of Israel. And Gideon's reply was similar to Moses' reply in Exodus chapter 3. Who am I? I am, of the, I am of the smallest tribe. My family is the smallest in our tribe. I basically am no, I'm a nobody. So who am I to fulfill this task? There's Elijah in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 3 and 4. Elijah thought he was the only one. Everyone has bowed the knee to Baal, and I'm the only one left. You remember the occasion, 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 3 and 4. This is when God will tell Elijah, you know, I have 7,000 like you who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 1 and verse 6, God said to Jeremiah, I've got a work for you to do. You're going to be my prophet and my spokesman. And Jeremiah said, but I'm just a child. Who am I to do this? These are doubts. These are questions. These are people who are wrestling and struggling to understand what it is that's going on. But doubt that is left unchecked, that can become a serious problem. In 1 Samuel chapter 17, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 17 and verse number 11, the Bible tells us that doubt plagued the children of Israel, and as you examine this account more closely, you'll find that uh, this doubt became a real problem for them. This is the occasion of David and Goliath, but before David ever arrives on the scene, The Bible tells us that when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, that is is Goliath, they were dismayed and they were greatly afraid. This is a situation in which their doubt was not dealt with in an appropriate way. And so while Saul and the rest of Israel are cowering in fear in front of this great Philistine because of their doubt, here comes David with confidence and with the willingness to deal with the problem. In uh, Numbers chapter 20 and verse number 12, we of course have another illustration of doubt where God speaks to Moses and to Aaron because uh, this is on the occasion of Moses striking the rock to give water instead of speaking to it as God commanded. And this is when God tells Moses, you're not going to enter into the land of Canaan Look what he says in Numbers 20 and verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, and here's what he said. Listen to this. Because you did not believe me. Because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you will not bring this assembly into the land which I've given them. Notice, you did not believe me. What does that imply? That implies that there had to have been some level of uncertainty. There was some level of doubt here, and it was not handled in the right way. So doubt, questioning, trying to wrestle with information, that in and of itself is not inappropriate. But if we don't deal with it in the right way, if we allow it to go too far, then it can cross a line and it can become inappropriate. So how do we deal with it then? That's the question of the evening. And in order to answer the question, what I want us to do is I want us to look briefly at four accounts in the Bible of people who struggle with faith, struggle with doubt to whatever degree, and and glean one lesson, at least, from each one of these four, it won't be possible really for us, I think, to have an exact blueprint 
that will help us to navigate through every single specific question or doubt that we may have in this life. But I do believe that with these principles that we will find from these examples in God's word, with these principles, we will have a solid foundation that will enable us, that will help us to be able to wrestle with these questions in a way that will be appropriate and pleasing to God. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of Matthew first, and I want us to look at Matthew chapter 14. And the first example that we want to consider is that of the Apostle Peter. In Matthew chapter 14, this is the occasion of Jesus walking on the water. And you remember in Matthew chapter 14, we begin in about uh, verse number 25, that the Bible tells us that the disciples, the apostles are in a boat on the, the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus went out to them walking on the sea. And when the disciples saw him walking on the sea, they were troubled, saying, It is a ghost. And they cried out for fear. But immediately Jesus spoke to them, saying, Be of good cheer. It is I. Do not be afraid. And Peter answered him and said, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. So he said, Come. And when Peter had come down out of the boat, he walked on the water to go to Jesus. But when he saw that the wind was boisterous, he was afraid, and he began to sink. And cried out, saying, Lord, save me. And immediately Jesus stretched out his hand and caught him and said to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased. And then those who were in the boat came and worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. Lesson number one, as it pertains to dealing with our doubts and dealing with our questions from the Apostle Peter, is this Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Look closer at this context, and I want you to notice, what is it that the Bible says about the initial response of those on the boat in verse number 26? Why did they cry out? They cried out because of fear. And Jesus' response to them in verse number 27 is, what? Do not be afraid. And then when we skip down... In verse 30 and 31, the Bible tells us that the moment that Peter began to sink in the water in the middle of verse 30 is what? The moment that he became afraid. The point that the Bible is making in this case is this. It was Peter's fear that produced his doubt. Verse 30 tells us that when Peter was afraid, he began to sink. And in verse 31, when Jesus called out to him, he says what? Why did you doubt? You see, the thing about fear is that fear often is irrational. And what happens then is we get into this cycle where we allow our fear to overwhelm us and it feeds our doubts. Fear causes anxiety. Fear of the unknown is probably the best fuel for doubt. What if this happens? What if this does not happen? What will happen five years down the road? Or if I make this decision now, what is that going to look like in the future? It is appropriate, I think, for us to spend some level of energy thinking in a responsible and in a way uh, of a good steward in planning for the future. We have to plan for the future. In fact, that's, that's biblical. Read the book of Nehemiah. We have to plan for the future. But we cannot be afraid of the what-ifs of the future. 
We cannot allow the things that we don't know to cloud our judgments and fill us with so much fear that it causes us, uh, it causes us to doubt and question. Remember Philippians chapter 4 and verse number 6. The Bible tells us whatever things, uh, the Bible tells us rather in Philippians 4, 6 that we are to be anxious for nothing. But in everything through prayer and supplication, let our requests be made known. The Bible tells us over and over again not to worry or not to be anxious. And really a synonym for worry or anxiety is fear. That's what happens with Peter in in Matthew chapter 14. It was his fear that fueled his doubt. And as we look at this world that we live in, and it doesn't matter what time period in history we might be talking about, there are a lot of things in this life that are unknowns. There are a lot of things in this life that if we spend enough time thinking about them and if we spend enough time obsessing over them, we will allow them to cause us to be scared almost to death. You remember our lesson from a few Sundays ago? We have a situation now in our world where for a lot of people, they are so terrified of dying that it has skewed their their vision of life. We're so afraid to die that we don't live. That's true, I think, for a lot of people. Fear is irrational, and fear will cause us to be anxious. And if we're so afraid of what may or what may not happen or what the future may or may not hold, that's going to do nothing but fuel our anxiety. It's going to fuel our questions. It's going to fuel our doubts. So we have to make sure that we're not afraid. Number two, let's turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 24 and following is the account that tells us about Thomas. And you know Thomas's nickname. Thomas's nickname is, is Doubting Thomas. And I want to suggest to you that Doubting Thomas may be very much misunderstood. What we learn from Thomas from John chapter 20 and verse 24 through 29 is that when we're dealing with doubt or we're struggling with a question... We have to put forth the effort to search for the answer. Read with me John chapter 20, verse 24. The Bible says, Now Thomas, called the twin of uh, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, We have seen the Lord. So he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. And Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here and look at my hands, and reach your hand there and put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. Thomas answered and said to him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have seen, who have not seen, rather, and yet have believed. What do we learn from Thomas? We learn that when we're struggling with doubt, when we're struggling with questions, it is vital for us to search for the answer. The Bible tells us that the other apostles had seen the risen Lord, but Thomas had not because he wasn't with them. And before we're too quick to judge Thomas... What we ought to remember are two passages. One, Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 17, and the other, Mark chapter 16 and verse number 14. 
Because what, that, what those passages tell us is that Thomas wasn't the only one who struggled with this. Matthew 28, 17 tells us when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Mark chapter 16, 14 says that Jesus upbraided them. He rebuked them. He's talking about the 12 because of their unbelief. So Thomas isn't the only one, it seems, who struggled with accepting the reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in this occasion, John chapter 20, verse 24 and following, what's going on here is that Thomas is unwilling to accept their testimony without evidence. That's the point here. They said the Lord has risen, and Thomas said, unless I see him and unless I can put my hands on his hands and touch the wounds in his hand and touch the, the hole in his side, I will not believe. The issue with Thomas is believing the eyewitness testimony. He wanted evidence, but he discounted the eyewitness testimony as being credible. As being credible. Now, I want to suggest to you that his insistence on evidence is a lesson for us. The problem with Thomas is not, I want the evidence. The problem with Thomas is that he didn't believe the evidence that was before him. And so as we consider Thomas, again, what it teaches us is that when we have a doubt about something or when we have a question about something, we ought to have a desire to get to the bottom of it. We ought to look at the evidence objectively and leave no stone unturned. And to borrow from the previous point, we ought not to be afraid to explore the evidence. There was an occasion I remember in my life where I was struggling with faith in God. And I spoke to someone who had a lot of experience and had worked a long time in the field of apologetics. And he said something to me that really has it stuck with me throughout all these years. What he said is this. Whenever someone makes a claim, I'm paraphrasing, but this is the idea. Whenever someone makes a claim, you know, like now and again, you'll hear a news story. We have found the bones of Jesus. He didn't really resurrect from the dead. Something like that. Whenever someone makes one of those claims, he said, do not be afraid to dig in as deeply as you can and go face to face with the evidence. The evidence that they claim they have and the real evidence. Don't be afraid. And the reason why he said don't be afraid is because truth is always going to reveal itself. So if you have a person who's saying, we've got the bones of Jesus, he really didn't resurrect from the grave, you take a moment and dig in and you read and you examine closer and what you're going to find is that the evidence that they have doesn't even come close to substantiating their claim. But the evidence that God has provided that Jesus did raise from the dead far surpasses anything that that person making a claim might claim that they have. So what Thomas teaches me is if there's some big question that I'm struggling with, I should not be afraid to really wrestle with it and dig down deep and try and find the answer. Because God has given us the evidence that we need to deal with doubt and to sustain our faith. Acts chapter 17 and verse number 27, the Apostle Paul spoke of uh, Christ and his work and his death, burial, and resurrection and the uh, spreading of Christianity. And he said all these things, they haven't been done in a corner. 
John chapter 20, verse 31 and 32, John told us that the reason for the writing of the, uh, the gospel account of John, he said, these things are written that you might believe, and that believing you might have life through his name. 1 John 5 and verse 13, my little children, I write these things unto you so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so that you may think, not so that you may feel that it's likely, you probably, no, I write these things so that you may know. So we've got to have the attitude of Thomas. I want to know, I want to know if God exists. I want to know if what the evolutionist is claiming has any merit. Look at it, investigate it, examine it, don't be afraid of it. I want to know how to reconcile the existence of God with an evil world. I want to know, fill in the blank, whatever the question is, whatever the struggle is, don't be afraid to search for the answer. Number three, let's go to the book of Psalms and look at Psalm 73. This is probably... Uh, my favorite, if not one of my favorite psalms, Psalm 73. This is a psalm of Asaph. And the reason why I love this psalm so much is because Asaph basically describes the questioning and the thought processes that I think most of us go through at some point or points in our life. Essentially, the question that Asaph asks in Psalm 73 is this, why is it that good things are always happening to terrible people? And that good people are struggling and dying just trying to make ends meet. Why does that happen? I want you to notice that we don't have the time to look at the whole psalm this evening. But as Asaph works through this, he, he, as this psalm progresses, he works us through his thought process. And he says something in Psalm 73, 15 that is very important. He said this, If I had said, I will speak thus... Behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. Now what that passage is saying is this. While Asaph was wrestling with the big questions of life and faith, he was very careful what he said about his struggles because he did not want his own questions and doubts to harm or be a stumbling block to the faith of someone else. So the lesson that we learn from Asaph is that while we're dealing with these doubts and questions, we have to be very careful. Because we don't want our issues and our struggles to damage or weaken the faith of someone else. We don't want to say something thinking out loud, you know, one of those kinds of things, in the hearing of someone who maybe is a new Christian who doesn't have a solid foundation and who may be struggling with things in their own life that will cause further harm or damage to their faith. Now, that's not to say that we shouldn't seek out counsel. That's not to say that it's wrong to talk through these questions and things that we're having. In fact, I would encourage us to do that. It's, it's good, it's needful, it's helpful. But we have to be careful. Keep reading in Psalm 73, and you'll notice, by the way, that Asaph tells us about when the light bulb finally came on. Verse 17. Verse 16 says, When I thought how to understand this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God. And then he says, I understood their end. 
The light bulb came on for Asaph whenever he recognized the reality that not all accounts are settled in this life. And so while it may be that it seems to our eyes here in this world that wicked people are able to do whatever they want unscathed, they can exercise whatever power they want, they can have as many material things as they can do whatever they want to do. They can hurt whoever they want to hurt. And it seems like they, they never have to pay the consequences. Asaph says, step back and see the big picture. And the big picture is what we see here in this world is not the end. So while they may be able to get away with it here, they will not get away with it in eternity. Because not all accounts are settled in this life. That's what he means when he says, that. then I understood their end. So as I'm struggling and, and going along trying to wrestle with these big questions, Asaph reminds me, number one, be careful. Be careful in this struggle. Be careful what you say. Don't sin with your tongue. Be careful what you say around whom you say it. Be mindful of the people that are, that are listening and that are, that are around you. Don't do anything that will hurt or harm them. But he also reminds us to keep the big picture in mind, verse 17. And that is that there is eternity. We may not know the answers to all of these questions now in this life, but someday we will. So we have to keep our perspective, uh, we have to keep the proper perspective. Number four, let's look at J uh, James chapter 5. This will be our last, our last example. James chapter 5, verse 13. And we want to note what James says about Job. In James chapter 5, James talks to us about the patience of Job. He talks to us about how we, we marvel at uh, Job's patience. Now, the word patient here is important because the literal meaning of it is to abide under. Peter teaches us not to fear. Thomas teaches us to search for the answer. Asaph teaches us to be careful. Job teaches us to be patient. Now go back in your minds to the account of Job in the book that bears his name. What James is telling us about Job is that Job was persistent and Job was determined during his difficulty. And he expresses that in a couple of passages himself. Like Job chapter 13 and verse 15. Behold, he will slay me, I have no hope. Listen to this. Nevertheless, I will maintain my ways before him. Job 13, 15. Job 19, 25. But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives and at last he will stand upon the earth. Here is a man who lost his family, his children, his possessions. He lost everything except for his life. You remember the account of Job. It is difficult, if not impossible, to imagine what it would be like to stand in his shoes. And yet God will tell us about him that he was patient, meaning he, abide, he, he, he was persistent and he was determined. He abided under, if you will, all of these things in a very patient way. So what does that tell me? That tells me that I don't need to give up. It reminds me of the importance of recognizing, as we said a little while ago, that some answers cannot be known in this life. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, The secret things belong to the Lord, you recall. 
But we balance passages like Deuteronomy 29, 29 with Daniel 4 and verse 17. The most high rules in the kingdoms of men. I don't know all of the ins and outs of providence. No one does. I don't know why certain things happen the way that they do. No one does. But there are some things that I do know. I know that God knows. I know that God is in control. I know that God is in charge. I know that God cares for his people. I know that God's promised to provide and to protect his people. And so as we go through the seasons of life and we're trying to understand why this and how that and so on, again, which is natural, what we have to do is be mindful of the patience of Job. We have to abide under and endure the difficulties. We have to be determined to keep our eyes on the prize Not so much focusing on the things we don't know, but remembering the things that we do know and never give up. In dealing with doubt, don't be afraid because fear fuels anxiety. Search for the answer. God has given us everything that we need in order to be pleasing unto him. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, the answers are there. We just have to be determined to find them. But in so doing, we have to be careful. We don't want to harm the faith of anybody else. We don't want to sin. And we also need to be patient. Because God's timeline is not always the same as ours. Now to conclude, I want to encourage you to consider the prophet Habakkuk. Maybe in your Bible reading this week or in your study, study through that book. It's an interesting book. One of my favorite Old Testament books, as a matter of fact, Habakkuk is presented in uh, those three chapters as a questioning prophet and then as a watching prophet and then as a rejoicing prophet. You remember that Habakkuk is the prophet who asked the question of God, God, how long are you going to allow this wickedness to go on in the world? And God's answer was, I'll tell you, but you're not going to believe it. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to raise up the Chaldeans, and the Chaldeans are going to inflict my punishment upon my people. And Habakkuk says, wait a minute. How are you going to use the wicked Chaldeans, who are infinitely more wicked than your own people, to punish your people? How does that work? That's his question. But then in chapter 2, he is a watching or waiting prophet And what Habakkuk describes of himself in Habakkuk chapter 2 is a prophet who says, you know what, I don't understand it and I don't don't know all the answers, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to sit here on on, on the high tower, I'm going to sit, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to watch. Because I know that the Lord will reveal the answer to me and he will help me to understand it. I'm going to wait and be patient. And he was. And so the book ends with Habakkuk rejoicing and praising God. Mark chapter 9 and verse number 24, there is a statement made by the father of the uh, demon-possessed son. And here's what he said to the Lord. He said, Lord, I believe, help thou my unbelief. I suppose that we could all say that prayer on more than one occasion in our life. Because, again, it is only human to sometimes doubt, to sometimes question, to sometimes struggle to reconcile facts and figures and try and make sense of this crazy world in which we live. And as I said at the beginning, there's no way that we could, there's no way that we could give a, an exact blueprint or roadmap that would enable us to, 
to work through every possible question or challenge that this life may pose to us. But I am confident that if we remember the lessons of these, these men of God that the Bible reveals to us, of Peter and of Thomas and of Asaph and of uh, Job, that those things will serve as a great foundation for us. Those things will serve as, as a, a way to help us in, in, by way of general principle to work through patiently and prayerfully whatever doubt and whatever question that we may have so that we can deal with them in a way that would please God instead of letting them go, uh, instead of letting them go unhandled and letting them grow and fester out of control to the point where they, they cause us to sin. So the lesson is yours this evening and hope that it's been helpful. We're going to offer the Lord's invitation now and it may be that there's someone here who has a desire to respond perhaps to become a Christian. If that's your need, if that's your desire, then we'd love to help you in doing it. Maybe tonight you are a Christian and you're struggling with something in your life, maybe a doubt, maybe a question. Can we pray for you? Can we encourage you? Can we help you in some way? Please come forward. Let your need be known while we stand and sing.